Welcome back, everyone, as we continue our studies in the book of Leviticus. Uh, this week, we find ourselves in Torah portion Zav, which is the second portion of Leviticus. Now, before I continue, just a disclaimer, um, there's some work going on on the roof. So if you hear some people tromping around up there, it's not thunder or the Russians invading. It's just some workmen, and it can get a little bit loud at times. Hopefully, it won't be a distraction, but if you do hear it, you'll know what's going on. Now, last week, I shared with you how Leviticus, being the middle book of the Torah, is the focal point of the Torah. It's the heart of the Torah. It's the book that Jewish children study first, and it uh, is also kind of the most boring book of the Torah. But the reason for that is there's not much there to satisfy the five senses, not much there to excite the imagination. And this is because it's the most spiritual book of the Torah. And by that, I mean it's the most hidden book. Because everything that is spiritual is hidden from the physical. The, today, as I sit here, is the day of Purim, the Feast of Esther. And so last night, people all around the world were reading the book of Esther. And they were cheering for Mordecai and booing Haman and going through and, and having a great, great time of it. And so this is the perfect time to address the subject of hiddenness because, as you well know, at the Feast of Purim, and this says Purim Sameach, Happy Purim, um, it's very traditional for people to dress up in costume and to wear masks. If you look on the computer for uh, clip art and artwork to celebrate this feast, you'll find images of noisemakers and, and uh, hamatosh and little triangular-shaped pastries. And uh, you'll probably find some um, uh, crowns. That's a, a popular uh, symbol for this holiday. But one thing you'll definitely find are masks. Because everything about the book of Esther is hidden, it's concealed. God is not mentioned in the book. His name does not appear in the book. Unless you learn to look under the surface. And we find that God's name, yad heh vav actually appears four times in the book of Esther. And you can go back and listen to one of my previous teachings on Esther where I lay this out and, and show how this occurs. It's, it's quite amazing to see this. But on the surface, <clears throat> you don't see God. In fact, the book of Esther opens up with this hyper-detailed description of the king's palace, describing the materials and the walls and the curtains and the furniture and the vessels, and, and you just feel like you're drowning in physicality with all these lush details. And that's one of the purposes of the book, to reflect what life is like here. Because here in this world, we are inundated with sights and sounds and, and feelings and smells and tastes. And it's easy in this kind of an environment to completely miss God altogether. Rabbi Akiva Tatz uh, years ago wrote a book called World Mask. And in the book, a wonderful book by the way, I highly recommend it, he discusses how the world, the physical creation, is the mask that God wears to conceal himself. And I want you to think about something. Near the end of the book of Exodus, we read about how Moses, after he spent the second 40 days and 40 nights on Mount Sinai, when he came down with the two tablets... His face glowed with the glory of God to such a degree that he had to put a veil over his face because it uh, startled the people. Now, if Moses, simply by spending 40 days and 40 nights in God's presence, caused him to glow to such a degree, what would it be like to see God himself, the source of this glorious light? If Moses had to wear a veil to hide the light of the glory of God from his 40-day exposure to God, 
What kind of veil, what kind of mask must God himself wear so as not to startle us? So that's a question to keep in mind as we go through. I um, call this section here, as we introduce Esther, uh, a word or three on hiddenness. The reason I put that title there is that in Hebrew, in the Torah, there's only one word that is used for visible. It's the word neru. But there are at least three words, and some count four words, that mean hidden, concealed, or to hide. And this tells me that the Torah is more interested in speaking of the hidden than of the revealed. The revealed is revealed, after all. We don't have to be told about it. We can see it and hear it. But the hidden world is something completely different. And it's this hidden world that the scriptures wishes to reveal to us, but in a spiritual way. You can always think of hidden being a symbol for spiritual, because the, the spiritual is not always obvious. It's hidden. And God calls us into this hidden realm to truly get to know him. So we're going to get to Leviticus, but we're going to tie Esther and hiddenness to Leviticus, so hopefully it'll set a tone for the rest of our studies in this amazing book. Here's the name Esther, as it appears in Hebrew. It's Aleph, Samic, Tav, Resh. Okay? And down here, we can see the last three letters of this word, which spell the word sitar, which means to hide. So even Esther's name is a word that means I will hide or hiddenness. This word sitar is used in a number of places in Scripture. One of my favorites is Proverbs 25.2. It is the glory of God to sitar a word, but the glory of kings is to search out a word. Now, that word for word is the word devar, which can mean a thing as well as a word. Um, there's one Hebrew word that means thing and means word, devar. And many translations put here a matter, to hide a matter, to search out a matter, and that's okay. I just want to give you the literal definition of the word devar. God conceals, and we as his children, as children of royalty, it's our glory to search out the things that he hides. God is playful at heart, and he has an amazing sense of humor. He's the perfect father, and a father enjoys his children. And so he has created this cosmic game of hide and seek. God hides himself from us, and he invites us to come and look for him. Because after all, Adam and Eve hid themselves from God, and God easily found them. And now he says, it's your turn. You come find me. We're to seek his face. And also, God hides many, many things in his word. And I think this is why David says there in Psalm 119, Father, Adonai, unveil my eyes that I may behold wonders from your Torah. And there are wonders there to search out and to discover. So that's the word sitar there in Proverbs 25 too. And next is 3.6. And this is at the burning bush and God speaks to Moses and he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses satarred his face. He hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And then also Isaiah 45, 15, where the prophet says, Truly, you are a God who satars himself, who hides himself, O God of Israel, Savior. Some translations put an exclamation mark at the end of that verse. And um, it's probably appropriate to do so. It's a proclamation that you hide yourself, my Savior. You, you hide yourself. It doesn't explain to us why he does, but we'll address this question as we go. There's another word that's used for hide and conceals, the word olam. 
And if you are familiar with the Shema, uh, we say, blessed be the name of your kingdom, le'olam va'ed, to the olam and until, and, and ongoing. This word olam is a very unique word. We do not have uh, an English word that is an exact equivalent of this Hebrew word. But olam is sometimes translated eternity or forever or age or world, but it comes from a root that means hidden. And this is appropriate because the world to come is a world that is hidden from us right now. Eternity past and eternity future are things that are hidden from us at this point. And when the scriptures talk about um, kaiolam, eternal life, what it's talking about is not just an ongoing existence, but it's talking about a kind of life that right now is hidden from us. It means so much more than merely eternal. And when the scriptures talk about uh, eternal punishment, it's talking about punishment that is concealed right now. But we can rest assured that punishment that is appropriate and is according to God's character to inflict. Nothing more, nothing less. So olam is a word that at its root means hidden. We find it in Leviticus in last week's portion. We were reading about the, um, the sin offering. And in chapter 4, verse 13, it says that the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally. And the thing is olam. It's olam from the eyes of the assembly. And they do any one of the things that by Adonai's commandments ought not to be done, and they realize their guilt, and it goes on. So there we see the word olam for hidden. And then the psalmist in Psalm 10. Uh, We're not specifically told that Psalm 10 is written by David, but in the Septuagint, Psalms 9 and 10 are together as one psalm, and we know that David wrote Psalm 9. So we can assume he wrote Psalm 10 as well. And David cries out, Why, Adonai, do you stand far away? Why do you olam yourself in times of trouble? Yeah, David's kind of whining here. And, um, but if God's concealing himself, it's the way he conceals himself in the book of Esther. It doesn't mean he's not there. It doesn't mean he's not active. It just simply means you can't see and understand right now what he's doing. So just hang tight. Things are going to turn out fine. And here's a third word that means hidden. The word zaphon. Zaphon. And it is found in, um, in this, uh, or last week's Torah portion. We'll get to that in a moment. But zaphon is the word that is used in Exodus 2, verses 2 and 3, concerning Jacobed, not Jacobed. Um, I always get Moses' wife and Moses' mother confused. David, who is Moses' mother? It went right out of my brain. He fell asleep at the controls, so we won't bother. Is it Jacobed? Oh, that's right. Zipporah was his wife. I was right the first time. Okay. Jacobed. It was Jacobed. And it says, the woman, Jochebed, conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she zephoned him three months. And when she could zephone him no longer, she took, him for a, uh, uh, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes. It goes on to talk how she prepared the basket. So zephone is also a word that means to hide and conceal. And Proverbs, just like her name was zephoned for me for a moment there. But Proverbs 2.1, Solomon says, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you. So here we see the word zephon being translated as treasure up. Just as Moses was a, a treasure to his mother and she wanted to hide him, protect him, preserve his life. Solomon is using the word zaphon here to hide, to conceal his words in the heart of his son. And then in Leviticus 1.11, And he shall kill it on the zaphona, the north side of the altar. Zaphon is the root of the word zaphona, which means north. Because the north is considered to be the side of the the hidden. 
All the sacrifices were sacrificed on the north side of the altar. Now, there are other words that mean north. The word Samoa, left, means north. But uh, many times you find the word Zaphona, and here it is also used. So anyways, three words, three mysterious and, and fascinating to me at least, words concerning hiddenness. Now the question is, why does God hide himself? Why does he play this game of hiding from us and then telling us, look for me, seek me, search for me? Why does he do this? I just happened to, to put on a, a DVD this week I'd watched years ago, and I don't know why, but I just brought it home from the ministry center here and thought, I'm going to watch this again. And it's by Rabbi Manus Friedman. And he's not talking about Leviticus. He's not talking about hiddenness. or That's not even the topic. It's a topic about marriage. But in there, he brings up this verse that God is a God who hides himself. And he asks the question, why does God hide himself? And, of course, my ears perk up at that. <clears throat> and he says, it's because if God were to reveal himself right now, we would be totally satisfied. All our questions would be answered. We wouldn't have to search for him and grope for him and reach for him anymore. Our learning about God would come to an end. And so, because it's so important to our creator that we learn to grope after him and search for him and grow in our knowledge and learn to find him, that is so important to him that he hides himself from us because this exercise is something that's necessary for us to grow into his bride. And there are people in this world who truly search for God and there are people, even people who call themselves believers, they don't search for him at all. So this searching for God, this growing to know him, is a vital exercise for God, so important that he created this world mask to hide himself behind for a time. But we know that in, uh, in John's, uh, John's letter in 1 John, we're told that the day is coming, we shall see him as he is. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. What a day that'll be. In the meantime, this growing to be like him, this growing and searching for our God is something that's vitally important for the growth of our souls and for us to become the people he wants us to be. I love this quote from Rabbi Milton Bonder. He says, well, we want to bring others to their senses, summon them to the territory of logic. We use the verb, look, look here, is a call for us to be logical and sensible. But when God says, Shema Yisrael, O Israel, listen, he is summoning us to the hidden world. Things that are hidden, I'm not able to see, but I am able to hear if I have ears. God is hidden. I can't see him. But we can hear him if we have ears to hear. There are spiritual things in this world, and we want to be able to see them. Can't see them. But faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And as I always say, spiritual light does not come in through the eyes. It comes in through the ears. We can't see the hidden things. We can't see the spiritual things. They can only be heard you know, at the end of Corinthians, when Paul describes his being caught up to the, the third heaven, he doesn't say, I saw things I can't describe. He says, I heard things that I cannot describe. So let's return to Esther for a moment. <clears throat> now, in Proverbs 31.10... Solomon talks about the woman of valor, the Ishit Kyle. There's the word Ishit, which means woman or wife, and Kyle. And there's no better English word to translate that than valor. This is basically a military term that represents 
courage in the face of challenge. And a woman who has courage in the face of challenge, who can find? Such a woman is difficult to find. She is far more precious than jewels. So uh, jewels are something you have to dig up out of the earth. You've got to search really hard to find jewels. But a woman of valor is even harder to find. So Ishet Kyle. Now there are two women in the Bible who are called an Ishet Kyle. Two women, only two women. And the first one is Ruth, who was Solomon's, <clears throat> let me get this right, great-grandmother. Uh, Ruth was the grandmother of uh, Jesse, if I have it correct, and then her son was David, and the David's son Solomon. So great-great-grandmother, we can check that out. It's somewhere in there, great-grandmother, great-great-grandmother. <clears throat> Excuse me, so when Solomon wrote Proverbs 31, he was honoring his great-great-grandmother. Because in Ruth 3.11, Boaz speaks to Ruth, and this is what he says, And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are an Ishit Kyle, a woman of valor. So there's number one, Ruth. Who's the second woman of valor? It's Esther. But if you search for the phrase woman of valor or Ishit Kyle, um, you're not going to find it there in regards to Esther. So how do we know Esther is a woman of valor? How does the Bible tell us that she's a woman of valor? Again, as with everything having to do with Esther, it's hidden. You'll find the answer here in Esther 2, verse 15. And there's a second place where it has the same thing. It says, Now when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter, and there's the key, Abihel, which is a terrible uh, transliteration of his name. Esther's father's name is actually Avi, which means father of Kyle, valor, the father of valor. So if Esther had a father, and his name was father of, of, of Kyle, of valor, then Esther must be that woman of valor. Because the father of valor would be the father of a woman of valor. So even Esther, being a woman of valor, it's hidden. It's there, but we have to dig it out. We have to open it up. We have to discover it. So this is a very special spiritual insight into Esther, the book, and the woman. So an interesting study would be to take Ruth and Esther, the two women of valor in Scripture, and to compare them and uh, to see how their lives are, are quite different, quite, quite distinct from one another, and yet both women of valor. Their challenges were very different. Their, uh, their husbands were very different. The locations of their stories are very different. But in both cases, we see bitterness and fear and pain and anxiety and death and destruction being completely transformed into life and into joy. So much so that in Esther, we have a feast named after her, the Feast of Esther, the Feast of Purim, that we celebrate and just have a, a joyous and amazing time. So that's a, a good study for you to do on your own. One more quote. This is from the Talmud, from Tractate Tanit, page 8b. And it says, blessing is to be found only in a thing hidden from the eye. Blessing is to be found only in a thing hidden from the eye. How many times did you see something and think, if I had that thing, I would be happy? And you get that thing and you're not so happy. The happiness wears off real quick. And in fact, you may become miserable by it. I couldn't begin to tell you how many people I know who thought, if I only had that car, I would be happy. And so they sacrifice and go into debt to get that car. And it's not very long before they, they sell it again. It's like the, the, um, the phrase you hear all the time, the two happiest days in a boat owner's life is the day he buys his boat and the day he sells his boat. 
So often we look at things to make us happy, and they don't. But it's only the things that do not appear to the eye that can truly make us happy. It's the hidden things, the spiritual things. In the video I mentioned earlier by uh, Rabbi Manus Friedman, he, uh, he, he speaks of pleasure and happiness, and we've talked about that before, how pleasure is physical, happiness is a function of the soul, but joy is a spiritual thing. And he shares in there that his mother would always say, don't come to the supper table unhappy. If you're unhappy, don't come. Get happy first, and then you can come. And he grew up thinking that she wanted this just simply so we didn't make other people miserable at the table. But he found out later what she meant by that was this. She made a delicious meal, and she wanted it to bring pleasure, but she knew that you can't really enjoy a pleasure unless you are first happy. Happiness must precede really engaging in a pleasure. So if you're looking to pleasure to make you happy, it's not going to work. But if you're happy, then pleasures are truly enjoyable. You can embrace and savor those pleasures to the fullest. But how do we get happy? Well, it comes from something spiritual called joy. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit, Paul tells us. And joy is something that transcends our conditions and circumstances. It transcends our health or our lack of it, wealth or poverty. It transcends it all. It's something that's deep within. And out of joy, we can be happy. And with that happiness, we can embrace pleasures and enjoy them to the fullness, the fullest, the way God intended them to be enjoyed. This, I just shared with you, is the key to a good marriage, by the way. Now, let's bring the topic back to Leviticus. Last week, I put a, a graphic on the screen that showed the five categories of sacrifices. Last week, I had the first two at the top and the last two at the bottom and the shalomim, the peace offerings in the middle. But here, I'm putting them in a, a vertical alignment. So we have the Ola and the Mecha at the top. These are the elevation offerings and the gift offerings. They're in a blue rectangle because they're completely voluntary. They have nothing to do with sin. At the bottom, I have the Chatat and the Asham. These are the sin and guilt offerings. I put them in red because they are required offerings um, under certain conditions. And in the middle, the one that connects the two top ones and the two bottom ones is the the peace offerings, which were voluntary, but were also, <clears throat> excuse me, were also required at particular times. The Passover lamb is a peace offering, and it's required for the person to bring this offering on Pesach each year. But in our Torah portion, we also find that there was a lamb that was to be offered in the morning and a lamb in the evening every day of the year, 365 days a year. The priest would start the day by bringing a male lamb and they would end the day by bringing another male lamb, two lambs a day, every day of the year. And these offerings are also peace offerings, but they're commanded for the priests to bring. Now, we can read about the Tamid offerings in Exodus 29, but also over in Numbers 28. So let's look at the Exodus 29 passage. I, I really distract. I can hear the guys banging around upstairs. Hopefully, you can't hear them. But if I kind of look up, I'm, I'm just afraid some workman's going to crash through the roof and land on my head. So uh, Exodus 29, starting with verse 38. Now, this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs, a year old, day by day. Now, it actually says in the first year, so they can be up to a year old. Day by day, tamid. That word continually is the word tamid in the scriptures. <clears throat> this comes from a root, amad, 
which means to stand, and the word for a pillar, like the two pillars in the front of the temple, are from this word amad. And we have a, a prayer that is prayed every day, and we use it in our liturgical service on Shabbat called the Amidah, which comes from this word, because it's a continual prayer. It's prayed every day. It's a standing prayer because it's prayed all the time. And because it has the word Ahmad in it, it's traditional for people to stand during the Amidah. So this word is a word that's found many times. But the word here continually is the word Tamid. Now here's a study you can do you might find interesting. There are eight things in the tabernacle, eight things that are called Tamid. This is one of them the two lambs that are brought, one in the morning, one in the evening, every day. But there are seven other things that are called tamid. And uh, you might find it interesting to go through and do a, a search and find out what these eight things are. So, day by day, tamid. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, a tenth measure of fine, I lost my place, a, fi, uh, a fine flour. Okay, so you got fine flour. This is grain. And it's mingled with a fourth of a heen of beaten oil. We're not quite sure how much a heen is, but uh, a heen is, best guess, about a half a liter. So a fourth of that is how much oil is mixed in with this fine flour. And a fourth of a heen of wine. So here we see grain and wine. The grain and the oil will be cooked together and uh, becomes a form of bread. And wine, bread and wine. Let that be a little clue to where we're going with this for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight and shall offer with it a grain offering and a drink offering. So you do it exactly the same way. As in the morning, for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to Adonai, it shall be a Tamid burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before Adonai, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. So there we see it described. And again, in Numbers chapter 28, you see a second description, which is almost identical to this one. So here we can look at this graphically. In the AM, we offer, the, the priest all offer the first lamb with the grain and the wine. And in the evening, the end of the day, with a second lamb, with the grain and the wine. And all of the rest of the sacrifices happen, happen in between these two. So these tamid offerings bookend the entire sacrificial day. And everything else happens in between. When you think of this, this lamb in the morning, lamb in the evening with the grain and the wine. If you know Messiah, this should echo that. This should remind you of him. And if we're correct that Messiah is hidden in this Tamid offering, that means the entire sacrificial system, which is bookended between the two Tamid offerings, is something that expresses to us something about Messiah and his sacrifice. And since we too are to take up our cross, we too are to imitate him about our being living sacrifices. So the entire sacrificial day, whatever sacrifices are brought, were brought in between the morning Tamid and the evening Tamid. Now what's interesting, <clears throat> if we look at Yeshua's last day, the day that he died, we find some very interesting things. At dawn, in Hebraic thought, dawn is called the first hour. And we can read in um, the, the Mishnah and in the Talmud, in fact, there's a tractate called Tamid, which is all about the Tamid offerings. So we find the details there. And also Josephus writes about these and, uh, and Edersheim's book on um, 
the, uh, the, the temple in the times of the Messiah. I forget the exact name of the set of books he wrote. He's a Messianic Jew who wrote about, about uh, Messiah in, in the first century. They all go into these details about the Tamid offering and the timing. So at dawn, it's the first hour. And that is when they would bring out the first lamb and tie the lamb to the altar. They wouldn't slaughter the lamb quite yet. It'd be tied to the altar. And in Mark 15.1, we're told, and as soon as it was morning, so at dawn, the first hour, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Yeshua, they tied him up, and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. So here we see our Passover lamb bound at dawn and being delivered up to be sacrificed. Then at the third hour, which would be about 9 a.m., the lamb is sacrificed. And in Mark 15, 25, we read, and it was the third hour when they crucified him. Now, he didn't die right away, but that's when they nailed him to the, the cross that's when they put the crown of, well, the crown of thorns is already on his head. But that's when they crucified him. Now, the sixth hour is three hours later, and that's at noon. So six hours is how long the sacrificial day was in the temple. So at the sixth hour, which is noon, they would take the second lamb and tie him to the altar. And he would stay there for a while. And we read this in Matthew 27:45. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. So the sixth hour, it became dark while Yeshua is on the cross. At Mark 15, 33, it says, And when the sixth hour had come, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. Luke also, 23:44. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. So he's on the cross for three hours. Now remember, during this time between the sacrifice of the first lamb and the second lamb is when all the sacrificial system uh, was, was taking place. And while Yeshua was on the cross, there were sacrifices being done in the temple. But then three hours later, we come to the ninth hour, around 3 p.m., this is when the second lamb that was tied to the altar is sacrificed. In Matthew 27, verse 45, it says, Now from the sixth hour darkness fell upon all the land till the ninth hour. Mark 15, 33. And when the sixth hour had come, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. And Luke 23, 44. Let me read a little bit more of this. We'll go on to 46. And it was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land till the ninth hour, the sun being obscured, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Yeshua cried out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. So just as that second Tamid lamb was sacrificed, its life was taken, Yeshua at the same time breathed his last on the cross. Now, this is not coincidence, but it is something that's hidden. Hidden way back in the book of Leviticus. Hidden way back in the Mishnah and in the Talmud. And then revealed through the Gospels. And what God is trying to show us is that what is pictured by the Tamid offering, by the morning and the evening lamb, is all subsumed into the sacrifice of our Messiah, who is bound when the first lamb was bound at dawn, and then he died when the second lamb died in the afternoon. It's pretty amazing stuff when you think about it. It's pretty incredible. But let's turn to Leviticus Let's start at the beginning of our portion. I just want to point out a few things to you that uh, will help guide you now as you continue on in your discussion through this book. In chapter 6, verse 1, and let me warn you right now that the verse numbers in chapter 6 do not align with the verse numbers in an English translation. 
what is verse 1 in my Bible is going to be, I think, verse 8 in yours. So whatever verse number I call out, you add 7 to it. Um, I think your chapter 6 begins where back earlier toward the end of my chapter 5. Now, when you get to chapter 7, it all comes out even again. But uh, the verse numbers are just off. That's all. All the words are the same, but just the verse numbers are off. And so in my verse 1, your verse 8, it says, Adonai spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his sons. Now, at the beginning of Leviticus, back at chapter 1, God had Moses speak to all the people of Israel. So those first five chapters are addressed to all the people. But beginning with chapter 6, in this section, 6, 7, and 8, are details that God wants the priest to be particular about. It's information that the people don't have to practice, but it pertains to the operation of the priest as they bring sacrifices. And it says, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the Torah of the elevation offering. Now, what it's referring to here is the Tamid offering. It's called both an elevation offering, an olah, but it's also called a shalamim, as we're going to see. It is the elevation offering that stays on the flame, on the altar, all night until the morning. Now, remember, the biblical day starts in evening. So it's the evening lamb that kind of is in view here, and then in the morning, the other lamb will be brought. And the fire of the altar should be kept aflame on it. The Kohen shall don his fitted linen tunic, and he shall don linen breeches on his flesh. He shall separate the ash of what the fire consumed of the elevation offering on the altar and place it next to the altar. He would use a silver shovel, and he would take ash from the land that had been burning all night long. He would take that and he would put it on the ground next to the altar. And then he would change clothes, and we know from the Talmud that this can even be a second priest who does the second part. And we're told it could be a priest who, for whatever reason, is disqualified from actually offering sacrifices. Maybe he has a physical blemish. And you know, Leviticus will tell us that the, 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 the physical health and appearance of a priest must be perfect. Are there any blemishes? And it lists them. That priest cannot officiate at the altar. But a priest with a physical blemish could take the ashes and take them out to a pure place, as we read here. He will remove his garments, don other garments, and he shall remove the ash to the outside of the camp to a pure place. This is a makom tahor, a pure place. But then it goes back to the sacrifice. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not be extinguished. And the Kohen shall kindle wood upon it every morning. He shall prepare the elevation offering upon it. and shall cause the fats of the shalomim to go up and smoke upon it. So we see that what's in view here for this first sacrifice of the day, the final sacrifice of the day, are these peace offerings, these shalomim, a permanent fire. And there's one of those other tamid things. It's an esh tamid, a continual permanent standing fire, shall remain aflame on the altar. It shall not be extinguished. Well, let's stop and think about this for a second. So it's describing the fire on the altar for this, this lamb, And one of the lambs burns all day while other sacrifices are put on. But then at the end of the day, when it's time to close up shop, so to speak, there's a second lamb put on, and it burns overnight while nobody's around. Let's just home in on that for a second. The tabernacle and the temple later were busy places. There were people coming all the time to walk around, to to watch the sacrifices being made, to hear the priest singing, to, um, to eat with friends. And so it was a very public thing as the sacrifices are being made. 
So that first lamb that's put on the altar in the morning, there would probably be a lot of people around to, to watch this because it was a, a very sacred moment. And that lamb would be burning all day as people came and went. But in the evening, a second lamb is put on the altar, then everyone's shooed out of the, the courtyard. And while this lamb burns, it burns all night long, and nobody's there to see. We are to be living sacrifices. And sometimes when you sacrifice yourself for the sake of others, you sacrifice your STP, your strength, time, and possessions, and you you give of yourself, sometimes people see it and they notice. And they admire it and they'll congratulate you and thank you. And they'll be so appreciative. And that's like the morning tamid. But we're to be living sacrifices 24-7, and there are other times you will sacrifice yourself, and you're like that evening tamid, and nobody watches it burn on the altar. Nobody sees. And we need to be careful that we are not like the wicked who do their good deeds to be seen of men. And one of the most important works you can do, one of the most important acts of service is prayer. And when we pray, the master tells us, don't be like the hypocrites who go on the street corners to pray aloud. Don't let your prayers just be in the liturgical services where others are around and say, oh, they're here to pray. I mean, do that. Be there for those. But don't let that be the only time you pray. There should be a time you pray when it's just you. And nobody sees it. There should be times when you are laying down your life for others and nobody knows it. When you're giving and nobody is aware. So keep that in mind. There's a a very personal application for me. And uh, I want to share that with you. So our job is to be the sacrifice. It's not our job to make sure people are watching us. Now, in the midst of this discussion of the Tamid offerings is this thing about taking the ashes away. Why does it interrupt the conversation about the Tamid by talking about the ashes? Take the ashes off, put them on the ground, and then get those, uh, change your clothes, and then someone takes those and takes them out to a pure place. Oh, here's another hidden thing. There is no way for the people in the days of the Torah to know what's being spoken of here. But if we fast forward temple times, the Temple of Solomon and then Herod's temple when Yeshua was alive and on earth, the place where the ashes were taken were out the east gate, across the Kidron Brook, and up to the Mount of Olives, which is directly due east of the Temple Mount. So when you read about this pure place where the ashes were put, think of the Temple Mount. And when you read about, I'm sorry, think of the Mount of Olives. And when you read about the Mount of Olives, think about the ashes. This is a place where the ashes from the offerings were taken. Excuse me. And so this is an interesting study you might want to do. What's the connection? What is the the ash represent? What is the ash in our own lives? And what are the events that occurred on the Mount of Olives? There's a significant event on the Mount of Olives back in Samuel that involved King David during a time of tremendous grieving over his son Absalom. But we know that the Mount of Olives is where Yeshua went to pray. We know that's where he was when he was arrested That is where he um, would go with his disciples when he would visit Jerusalem for the High Holy Days. We know from Zechariah, this is the place where Yeshua will return. Acts tells us that's where he was when he ascended, and Zechariah tells us that's where he will be when he returns. There's a lot of significance to this place where the ashes were taken, this pure place. So, I'll leave it to you to search that out.
I think at this time we'll just go straight on to the discussion questions. Number one, review and discuss the importance of God hiding himself. Why does he do this? And I know it's frustrating that he does, and he, God expects us to be a little frustrated. Frustration is part of the exercise, but it's still something that is very necessary and something best for us at this time. But why does God, what is the importance of him hiding himself? Leviticus 6, verses 3 and 4, describe the removal of the ashes to a pure place. And I discuss here, as we just did, in temple times, this pure place was the Mount of Olives. What events occurred on the Mount of Olives, and how do they tie in with the ashes from the altar? Number three, read Leviticus 7, verse 8. What does this have to do with you and me? Leviticus 7, 8 is where it describes and discusses the hides of the offerings and how when an offering is made, it is skinned and the hide belongs to the priest. We touched on this a little bit last week, but I want you to go back to that passage. Remember, there are two passages I always want you to keep in mind as we study Leviticus. One of those is Romans 12, 1 and 2. The other passage is Revelation chapter 20, verse 6. And our last question is geared to that. What do you make of the peculiar ritual described in chapter 8, verses 23 and 24? So, we have our two passages and two questions from Leviticus that tie to those two passages. If you're wondering what Leviticus 8, verses 23 and 24 are about, well, look it up. Discuss it. and see what you come up with. So, I guess it's only appropriate on this day of Purim, this day of the Feast of Esther, when we discuss hiddenness, that I really didn't even get to the Torah portion very much. But there are many things hidden there, and I hope that as you go through the discussion questions, you'll begin to study and discuss the things we did not discuss this morning. And you will search out the things that God has hidden there. And um, they won't be concealed any longer. So God bless you as you study his word and you search out those precious jewels that are found hidden throughout the Torah, and especially here in the book of Leviticus. Let's pray. Our Father and King, thank you so much for your word and for the way you write it. And Lord, though it's hard for me to thank you for hiding yourself, I must thank you because everything you do is perfect and right. And if it wasn't good for me, if it wasn't good for my brothers and sisters for you to hide yourself, then you wouldn't have done it. But it is good for us. So, Lord, may we take this time while we await the revelation of our Messiah and the day we stand before you and see you face to face. May we use this time as the wise virgins did to fill their, oil, their lamps with oil and preparation. For this is a time for crushing the olives. This is a time for gathering the light that is stored up in those those olives and that fruit, to store it up so we have light in dark days. So, Lord, I pray that as you hide yourself behind this world, we would be your ambassadors to be lights and to reveal you in this world. So, Father, I pray you would accomplish this. You would be pleased with our works. Be pleased with the people that you're making us to be. And we ask that you continue to be patient with us and make us those people, people like Messiah, in whose name we pray. Amen.